No, God's book, not Facebook. A message from Rabbi Guy Cohen, Minister Steve Gooden. As together, they unpack and explore the examination of what we read and why we read it and how it came to be. Can't be a follower and not know what you follow. Stay tuned as we continue the series. What is the Holy Bible? When you ask modern day Christians, what is the Holy Bible? They will tell you, well, it's the Old Testament and the New Testament. Well, what does that even mean? First off, the word Bible means a collection of books. You have many Bibles. There's the, the people skills Bible, right? There's the, the mechanics Bible. There's the, the technology Bible. There's all kind of Bibles. So why do we call it the Holy Bible? See, the Holy Bible, what you refer to, is the combination of the Jewish scriptures called the Tanakh. Tanakh is Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, and the writings of the New Testament, which are mostly the four Gospels and the writings of Paul, the letters of Paul. But altogether, they are referred to the holy collection of books. But when you break down the Jewish scriptures, the Tanakh, it's also a collection of books. You see, the Tanakh itself, Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim, is a collection of three main categories of books. Torah, what we refer to as the Torah, right? Torah, which is also referred in the New Testament as the book of the law, are really five separate books. You see, within the Torah, we have Bereshit, which is Genesis, Shmot, which is Exodus, Vaikra, Leviticus, Bamidbar, Numbers, and Dvarim, Deuteronomy. So the Torah is really five books, Bereshit, Shmot, Vaikra, Midbar Dvarim. And those specific books, those five books, are basically the, the, the building block for the world's three biggest religions. Because out of the Torah comes the story of, first of the creation of the world in Genesis, right? The first few chapters talk about the creation of the world and the fall from paradise you know, from Gan Eden, obviously the story with the serpent, with Adam and Eve, and the rest of the four books, Shmot Vayikrabim with Bar Dvarim, you know, from Exodus until Deuteronomy, talks about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt until they arrive at the Holy Land in Israel, right? And the book of the law, all the different guiding guidance and the different laws and rules that God has given us in the desert. Well, he was teaching us how to live and how to behave and how to separate ourselves from the debauchery of the world. You know, all the, the sinfulness of the world. Because when you actually understand the law and when you understand God's purpose in giving the law, then you realize that the law is actually not about the law. God hasn't given us the four books of Exodus until Deuteronomy in order to have us live by those exact laws for the rest of eternity. Those laws were given at that certain time in order to build the fundamental faith along the Israelites on their way out of Egypt, on their way out of slavery 
out of the culture that worshipped all kind of pagan gods. And God had to find a way to separate us and to create us to be a holy people dedicated and consecrated to him. So see, that's the five books of the Torah. Then you have Nevi'im, which is prophets. And the book of Nevi'im, the, the collection of books Nevi'im, also breaks down into two major categories. You have the initial prophets and the later prophets. Under the initial prophets, you have the books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, first and second, and Kings, first and second. Those books talk about the, the initial stages of the Israelites within the land of Canaan, which is in the land of Israel. And it starts from obviously Joshua crossing the river with the Israelites until, you know, we have the stories of, of the, the kingdom with David and the book of Kings really ends at the destruction of the temple and the exile into Babylon. Right then we have the later prophets, which are Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the dozen we call Trey Asar. So really, the later prophets call it into they break down into four different books. You have Ishayar, Yirmiyah, Yechezkel, and Trey Asar. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Trey Asar, which is the dozen minor prophets, which of course within themselves count to uh, Hosea. Joel, Amos, Ovadia, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Those are the 12 minor prophets. They are also considered to be in the middle section of the Tanakh. Not in the end, like many English Bibles put. A lot of Christians think Malachi is the last book of the Hebrew Scriptures. That is not true. All of these minor prophets are right there in the middle of the Hebrew scriptures, along the rest of the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the rest of them are all grouped together within the prophet's book. And the, the third and the last part of the scripture of the Tanakh is the Ketuvim, right? Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. Ketuvim is the scribes, the writings, the books that are not necessarily of Israel, but they, they are credited to be of later origin. They were added later into the scriptures and they talk about different occasions, different situations. For example, the Ketuvim, they break down also into a, a few different groups. You have Sifrei Emet. Sifrei Emet is the Tehilim, which is Psalms. Mishlei, which is Proverbs. And Ayob, which is the book of Job. Those three break down into kind of a group on their own. Mishlei and Ayob, Proverbs and Job, usually go together because they both pretty much talk about wisdom and God. The book of Job, many people do not understand what it's really about. It's actually not about Job, if you really understand the message. The book of Job is about God. The majority of the book of Job talks about God. Who laid the foundations of the earth? Who tells the clouds when to bring down rain on the earth? Who laid the whole universe in its place? Who created everything? It's all about God, if you realize it. And it's not about Job at all. Job just seems to be in it. <laughs> Job is just the, you know, one of the, the characters in the show, but it's not about Job. It's all about God. 
right? You know that song, everywhere I go, it's all about you. It's all about God. So we have those three books, right? Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. Then we have the five scrolls. Now, a lot of people get those scrolls confused. The five scrolls uh, are actually the Song of Songs, you know, the Songs of Solomon, the Scroll of Ruth, Megillat Ruth. We have Eicha, which is Lamentations, Kahelet, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. So the five scrolls are uh, very unique because, they're, first off, they're, they're different from the rest of the scripture. Each one of them kind of has its its own purpose, its own place. And they're usually only read on different occasions, special occasions and holidays. For example, the scroll of Esther, Megillat Esther, is read on Purim. You know, Megillat Ruth is not often read, but it's actually very interesting. If you take the time to read it, it's about the where the, David's lineage, you know, where he came from. Very interesting to read. And then, of course, you have the book of Daniel, which is also kind of its own thing. But Daniel actually takes place right after kings when we are the Israelites were exiled into Babylon. So the the chronology here is not necessarily in order, yet all of these books were added later because of the time they were written, regardless of the content that correlates with the rest of the scriptures. Then you have the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is actually related to as one book that, is, that connects together since they both talk about pretty much the exact same things from, from two different perspectives. But they talk about each other in, in both books. So a lot of people just read it as Ezra and Nehemiah, which is just considered to be one book. And then you have Chronicles, the last and final book of the Hebrew scriptures. Not Malachi, but Chronicles. Because Chronicles was added last, and it talks about the history of the Israelites. The history, and it talks about the different genealogies in the first chapters. And then the, at the end of Second Chronicles, it talks about, obviously, all the kings, the lineage of the kings, until the exile into Babylon. And it adds a lot of information that was missing in the Book of Kings. But it pretty much it goes in the same time as the Book of Kings only it adds more information that was removed from the Book of Kings, you know, for for the sake of space and words. Because obviously, if you wrote everything that has happened throughout this entire, you know, entire uh, generation, there wouldn't be enough pages in the world for that. Because it just, it's too much to write down. So you have to remember when you read the scripture, obviously it doesn't say anything because it is impossible to write everything that has happened. Think of how many participants are there and everyone has their own thoughts. I mean, you have what? A few thousand thoughts every day. If you wrote everything you do in a day, it would never be the end of it. Now imagine writing everything that is happening in a kingdom with hundreds and thousands, if not millions of people. It is practically impossible. So it has to be summarized. That is why we have multiple books. That some of them correlate together like Chronicles and and the uh, Kings and uh, Isaiah, also, it's kind of like the same period. And Jeremiah takes place closer to the exile to Babylon, kind of leads up to that. And uh, the rest of the prophets, it, each of them kind of talks about a different time in Israel. For example, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are prophesying, you know, about the return to Zion. And uh, it's 
if you actually take the time to study, I'm not going to get into it now, but you should take the time to study it if you call yourself a believer. I mean, if you call yourself a Christian or a Jew or anyone who follows God, you should at least take the time to do your homework and know what you believe in. How come is it that the people who claim to be believers, who claim to be followers, know the least about God? I met people that know more about God that have never been to synagogue, never been to church, but they you know, they just get God. <laughs> and I met people in church, they carry their Bible anywhere they go, and they know absolutely nothing. I met this guy once at a church, and he started arguing with me and asked him, have you even read the five books of Moses? He couldn't even name them. And he called himself a believer. Well, if you don't know the Torah, if you don't know the first five books, you know, the, the Bereshit, Shmot, Ve'ekrab, Midbar, Dvarim, then you really don't know God. I don't care if you're a Christian. Christians is not a religion. Christians are followers of Jesus Christ, which is Jewish. So if you're a Christian, then you're technically a Jew. You get that, right? You are grafted into the tree of Judaism. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Jesus is a Jewish vine. He's a Jew, Jewish. So if you're following a Jew, then you're Jewish too. You get that. At least you should get that. So the Jews did not kill Jesus. First of all, Jesus sacrificed himself for the benefit of humanity. Nobody killed Jesus. He sacrificed himself. Second of all, he was Jewish. So to say the Jews killed Jesus just shows how arrogant you really are. So if you really want to follow Jesus or follow Moses or follow God or follow anyone that has to do with the Holy Scripture, the minimum that you can do is actually learn what those scriptures are, what they stand for, where they came from. Because if you don't know what you believe in, why should anyone listen to anything you have to say? And I'm going to turn this over to Stephen because he has a few words for you. So there you go. Well, I tell you, Rabbi Guy, thank you. And that was wonderfully illustrated and articulated and explained succinctly and specifically. And I know that uh, part two, uh, as we continue this series, is going to shed even more knowledge as we know God's book, not Facebook, as you say. Know God's book, not Facebook. And I think that too often as followers, we, we follow and do not know what we follow. And helping to understand it from its original origins, which are Judaic, the tribe of Judah, will give better understanding to refer to it properly and not just call it Old Testament, as so many do, as if it's obsolete, outdated, antiquated, and unrelated. Um, but we know better than that. So thank you. Thank you so much for this part one as we continue to exhaustively examine what we say we believe. After all, we're followers. Do we not even care? If we don't even know how to explain what we follow, why do we expect other people to follow it? So thank you, right? Know God's book, not Facebook. And so often in the New Testament, as we refer to it, and figuring out the writings, and we're going to that later 
as well. I'm not so sure this particular episode, as I continue, we'll be talking about the formulation. We'll go into that much later. The formulation and the canonization, putting together, coalescing all these different writings and then going through the various changes of the Bible, which is in American history, has a lot to do with the difference between the separatists of the English colonies, the pilgrims and the Puritans, and King James and others, Martin Luther and Gutenberg, and the Geneva followers, finding out what scriptures, what particular writings, the Catholic Latin, the Apocrypha, all of the various books, and people forget that it's called the Nicaea Creed, not the Nicaea Bibliotech. It was about the belief of the divinity of Christ, not about the collection of writings. Much, 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 much later. We will go over that in detail, I guarantee you. For now, let's examine this. First, the New Testament is around 350 to 360, 30 AD, 2,000 years ago. 330 to 340 years, we get these complete writings to the death of Jesus, who somewhere between 30 and 33 is death. Most of our writings are 70 to 90 years after. Some even would say even longer, 100 of the first writings of Christ. Doing the Nicaea Creed, it wasn't there, as I said, for the formulation of the books, but the arguments on the divinity of Christ, how he would be seen, a subtle positions, so they would be brought together to examine that. Thank you, Constantine. On the divinity of Jesus, the Trinitarian teachings, and so on. So in actuality, hundreds of years after the death of Jesus, we get the things that we think of today as the core elements of our faith. And that's a longer period than that of the core documents being established in the founding constitutional writings of the United States of America. And yet we still argue with that, with the intentions of the framers of the documents, what was meant when they wrote it. The fact that we have no original copies of the New Testament, we have hundreds and hundreds of of writing scraps, scribes, but not the originals, uh, copies and copies and copies of the copies, hundreds. Simple interpretations, some good, some not so good, all in Greek. Yet all the disciples were Jewish. And the early disciples of Jesus, as we know, right, they weren't trained Greek writers. That would have been quite uh, abnormal. They spoke Aramaic. So immediately there is the first issue. Uh, what gets lost in translation, both literal and metaphoric, and the cultural understanding of language, cultural immersion, the understanding of that, and then how it gets translated from Aramaic to Greek and who did it. The first church was Jewish church. We know that. The book of Acts, Jewish believers, Jesus was Jewish, disciples were Jewish, run by Jews. But Paul becomes really the principal missionary who franchised the faith globally of his time, integrating into the Roman pantheon. To Gentiles, non-Jewish people, 
Roman Empire. And I often said that that's partly could be because, you know, Paul wasn't exactly accepted by the disciples of Jesus Christ. And of course, he was a persecutor as a Jew himself of the cultic group or that fringe group of the Jewish faith, the followers of the way. So Paul kind of went on his own. He had uh, probably more street cred with a Gentile than he did with most of the original Jewish followers and the disciples who continue to talk about and share the teachings of Jesus. Paul never walked with Jesus. As you know, he definitely said he had a revelation. He, you know, rather in the body of the flesh, he didn't know. <laughs> and jokingly, was he high on LSD or mushrooms? I don't know if it really happened or I was just high. Who knows? But uh, nonetheless, uh, the Christian religion incorporated could be mostly attributed to Paul in those early days, long before the Catholic Church. Yet Paul never met Jesus. And he was known to have somewhat indifferent relationship with the disciples of Jesus. We do know that as well. So the Gospels had not yet been written when Paul wrote his first letter. The Gospels first show up 70, 75, maybe 80 years after, in the 70s, 40 years after the death of Jesus Christ, was when Paul wrote. Paul's letters actually are 20 years sooner after the death of Jesus, and yet he wasn't even a personal witness of Jesus's ministry. Original copies are are in Greek, as I said, and Jesus' death, which is somewhere between 30 and 33, we see the first gospel around 70. So that would have been 40 years after, but mostly was transferred in oral tradition by the early church fathers. James, a partner of Paul, uh, it says he dies 50s and 60s. Jerusalem was sacked in the 70s, the Romans. And most of the Jewish Christians were dispersed, scattered all around the world. Mark's gospel actually comes after that event. Mark and Matthew were comprised from a source, historically, I think some Germanic source called the Q source, which was a source material of which you can see mostly Matthew and Mark's writings are based upon. And then there's the Gospel of Thomas, a very controversial gospel. I think that's over in India, over 5 million people still following that. It was rejected by a lot of the earlier church fathers. But there's a lot of writings, as Rabbi Guy refers to. Hey, please, there's no way of writing everything down. And at this time, most people were illiterate. Imagine that. Original copies were all in Greek. Going back, again, his death. Somewhere between 30 and 33, the first gospels around 70, but mostly oral tradition, reiterating that point to you. Then we have what's known as the Gnostic or Nahamas Gospels, which were discovered, then reveals that the early church was very diverse in what books they used and what beliefs they had. And the community of the Pantheon of beliefs under this Abrahamic faith, and of course the hybrid mixed with this Roman Pantheon, and all of the interconnections of it. But it was very diverse. There was no Bible then. And Rabbi Guy refers to the Jewish writings, which is what would have been preferred to when Timothy and Titus would says, read the scripture. It wouldn't have been what you read in the New Testament. It would have been the things that Rabbi Guy referred to the Torah, the Tanakh, 
the prophets. When the Gospels were written, well, nobody really knows. The possible dates, though, as I said, Mark around 70, so 40 years after Matthew, uh, around 85 to 90, Luke about that same time, Acts between 80 and as much as 100. And of course, the, the writers, uh, Luke and Acts, well, same writer. But we're not certain. But that's the scholarly consensus for the most part. Possible dates thought, like as I said, Mark around 70, Acts 80 to 90, Revelations around 95, which was called Apocalypse. The book of which is was Paul's ministry, rather apocalyptic, little, not the pastoral letters that you see in uh, Timothy and Titus, which is why many don't believe that Paul wrote those epistles. Uh, and I'll go over that secondly. Then the book of John, which is considered by most scholars the most disputed and controversial of all the Gospels, particularly because it's the most anonymous, too, written about 90 to 100, although it is possible that that was even written even longer after that. So we have the earliest writing, 40 years after his death, later, the most 70 to 100 after his death, 30, 33 AD, and even the early church did not agree that Mark and Luke were eyewitnesses of Christ. Well, is it the Mark? Is it the Luke? We're not certain. Matthew would be considered the most legitimate one, but a lot of times people back then would write books that get other people to read them. They would ascribe it to an author that would be more famous and more known. In order, and why would you read my writing? And if I told you that uh, James Patterson wrote this when he didn't, you'd probably read it. I pen his name. It wasn't uncommon to pen a famous man's name to the book, and then you would definitely give it more credibility. Problem is the Gospels were written anonymously. Anonymously. John's Gospel declares itself the one whom Jesus loved. But which John is this? And which disciple did he love? Who wrote it? You have to look at the tense of the writing, which wouldn't make sense either. So that sends a red flag in the scholarly work of examining what you're reading to make sure that the book, the one that you read, and to believe in another one, the writings, it's, it's like uh, the autobiography, the, you know, the authorized version, as opposed to the version that's not authorized. And which one are you going to believe? Well, if it says authorized version, you're going to believe that the guy that you're writing about actually approved it. He may not have, but if you put that there, you'll think so, and then you'll buy that one and believe what you're reading. And this was a practice that was done even back then. Same thing, no different. But being that, we have no real proof that the beloved disciple of Jesus, John, is the John that is writing it, or we refer to himself that way. One would say, and some of the other Gnostic Gospels, that is believed that Mary Magdalene was the one that it was referred to as the disciples were a little jealous of the fact that he preferred Mary Magdalene. Of course, the story of Mary Magdalene, right, or, or I guess it's the adulterous woman caught. Well, there's no record of that story. It's a great story. The principles are true that are taught in it, but is there any record of it? Do we see any writings of it? No, we don't. And those are other things that make people eyes wander about what exactly can we accept? Uh, the, the basic tenets, there's, there are many things that you have to understand in your faith and understand the book and where it was written. Understand that's important. When understanding how to defend your faith, what to believe about your faith, what to know about it, and what are you basing it on? to be intelligent.
because God did give you a mind. Use it. But if you don't care about your faith, you won't care to study it at all. Second Timothy 2.15, right? Rather, Paul wrote that or not. It's true. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a right man that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, discerning things. Some of the scribes even put their own personal touch on the writings. They were known for forgeries in the world. They still are today. Fake news. The majority of the people back then could not read or write. Did you know that? And more than likely, the disciples did not read or write at all. Though Paul, highly educated, did. But we do know also that certain of Paul's letters, Thessalonians, Ephesians, Timothy, Titus, possibly were not written by Paul, including Hebrews. So someone wrote it, but we're not sure who. Though it's ascribed to names that you would accept and would recognize. Not unusual. That's how it was done. These were the practices. These were the things. So there are things that are inconsistent. They look at writing styles. The scholars look at writing styles and look in the book and see inconsistencies. Someone is trying to get the message out and they're using the best that they can by hook or crook. Divinely inspired, I like to remind you that an imperfect God, I'm sorry, forgive me, not an imperfect God, but a perfect God uses imperfect men like you and I to do his perfect work. Now, someone might say God is imperfect, right? Well, if God was so perfect, didn't he know that these men were going to do this? If God was so perfect, didn't he know how to protect his work and protect his message? I've heard that argument many times. I tend to believe that the perfect God is in between the imperfect paces and places and spaces and faces of men. And he does not need man to be exacting for him to be exacting because you cannot impede his work. Hook or crook. The very thing that you think that you're doing to append God's work, to change his work, actually confirms it. Remember the real things and the real writings are manifest in the work itself. Now, we look at all of the other controversies, a few of them, right? Particularly in John, things that are known that John does not mention. The book of John does not mention the virgin birth. It does not mention the baptism. It does not mention the transfiguration. It does not mention the temptation of Jesus on the mountain. It does not mention any of those things in that regard. A little inconsistent for the one who, the disciple whom Jesus loved. So we're very concerned. And John has written a style that is very high Greek, very high literary. Some scholars have said would be Shakespearean. And the only person that comes close to that, to our knowledge, was Paul. John would not have had that. And is it possible that he did a speed course on high literature and high Greek? But that would not have been something that Paul would have, I'm sorry, that John would have done. As again, not that level of uh, literacy and linguistic skill, but that would have been right along the lines of Paul. So it's interesting to note who it was. Maybe Paul, maybe it was someone else. We don't know. Again, there is no record. It's anonymous. So we, we look at several other things. Uh, the classic fact that if Mark wrote Mark, would he have written in the first person? The first gospel is Mark. He doesn't show up first. It's Matthew, at least not even mentioned until 140 years after that. Mark was allegedly a friend or a companion, Paul. And yet 
Peter is not written in a favorable light. Well, Luke was a Paul, I'm sorry, Mark was a, a Peter, Luke was a Paul. But yet in Mark's writing, he doesn't write Peter. Peter's always a bumbling, fumbling guy who puts his foot in his mouth all the time. So it's a little questionable. Did Mark really have a favorable relationship with Peter? And which Mark was it? Again, written 8590 and anonymous. The references of the gospel of Matthew references himself. Another interesting point. The writing style, however, was 90% Mark's writing style. Must be the same author, Matthew and Mark. Because it just doesn't seem to add up that these are different people and the styles. The only sign that Jesus wrote anything was the story of the woman that was caught in adultery. That's the only record that he wrote anything. There's no literary story that seems to have more effect on our religious response to the nature of Christ and sin, then the story of Mary Magdalene, yet there's no record of that story ever happened. But the teachings of it are true. The teachings of the point and the principle of it are true. And when you go back, apart from Jesus reading Isaiah in the temple, a Jewish reading of the Torah, when you go back and our earlier Bibles, 400 to 500 years of fragments, don't record the story of Mary Magdalene. So there is no record that that story ever happened, but nonetheless, it's a good story. So much we don't know is possible to write it all down, that we don't know what we don't know. And we keep finding what we don't know when we find a new papyrus or a new archeological dig in the Middle East or Africa that brings another piece to the puzzle. And God somehow or another divinely and wonderfully uses the pieces, not waiting for a Bedouin shepherd to find something in a cave that's been sitting there underneath dirt and rock and sand and stone for thousands of years, can still get his word and his message out in between the pieces. Isn't that amazing? That is the great beauty and miracle of your faith. It's not one that brings it into doubt, it's one that brings it more into a deeper faith and it enriches it with what God is able to do with man's inadequacy and failure. I want you to always remember that in studying any of these things as we unpack understanding the bigger picture, which is long past any particular one verse or scripture or proverb. Because before any of the writings, before any of the books, before any of the oral traditions, before any of the Tanakh, before any of the church fathers and their creeds and writings and whatever, there was God, there was nature, there was creation, there was you and I, the birds, the bees, the flowers and the seeds. It's not the book, life itself, more than paper bound in leather, and would, is it not already written in your chromosome and DNA and your genetics and your blood and your spirit? Is it not already written in the atom, the molecules, the energy, the light of life? Is it not already written before it was ever burned on wood or stone? Know what you're following. Know God's book.
not Facebook. No, God's book, not Facebook. A message from Rabbi Guy Cohen, Minister Steve Gooden. As together, they unpack and explore the examination of what we read and why we read it and how it came to be. Can't be a follower and not know what you follow. Stay tuned as we continue the series.